I was scanning Twitter the other day when someone pointed out a tweet from Mike Chambers, the Denver Post Colorado Avalanche beat writer. It was sent out shortly after the Avalanche captured the Stanley Cup, and it featured photos of Mike holding the cup aloft while smoking a victory cigar. And he wrote, Probably the most memorable experience of my career. Hashtag Stanley Cup. And I don't know Mike. I have no beef with Mike. I certainly don't want Mike losing his job. But you can't do shit like that. You just can't. And for those who say, and did say on Twitter, well, why not? Here's why not. Number one, because you're a fucking journalist, not a fan. And your job is to cover the team objectively, fairly, and honestly. And if you're celebrating the cup with the men you cover, if you're lighting up a stogie, why should I ever believe your objectivity? Why would I think you're going to cover the negative when you're so, so, so over the moon happy with the positive? How are you going to handle the next scandal? Are you even going to cover it? Or are you going to cover it up? And number two, no athlete respects a homer journalist. None, ever. These guys know the difference between pros and amateurs. They do. And while they don't enjoy negative coverage, they tend to respect it. But the writers who think of a team as we, as in we did it, no. You look like a fool. And in this era of attack the media, of fake news, of you can't trust anyone, we, the journalists of this country, desperately need to be trusted. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Dr. Lindsay M. Travinsky, presidential historian and author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. And this is a really fascinating chat, whether you dig politics or not. This is episode number 266 Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Lindsay, here's where I want to start. You're a presidential historian and during very, very weird times in this country. And I was just saying to my wife before I started this, one of my favorite traditions in American history is when you see former presidents visit the White House. So you'll, you'll have the photo of Obama with Bush Sr., with, you know, Clinton, Carter, and they're all together. I love those photos spanning the decades. I love those photos. I love that Jimmy Carter couldn't stand around on Reagan, but he would go back to the White House and they would pose and they would chat. And it was this beautiful thing. And that no longer seems to exist. And it freaking breaks my heart. And I wonder as a, as a historian, as a, as a presidential historian, someone who loves the presidency and finds the presidency fascinating, what the sort of modern universe has done to that love and how you view it all. It's made it really difficult. Um, so I finished my PhD in early 2017 and was working on this book afterwards. And so I have not yet been a professional historian in a boring time. And in some ways, that's really shaped the evolution of my work because I had studied the presidency and it, it felt like a fairly settled institution. There was always going to be change. There's always evolution. The 20th century saw an enormous expansion of executive authority. But the institution itself felt like there were certain parameters that were sort of permanent and people understood what they were going to be. And you had this certain expectation about how things were. And then Donald Trump came into office and that all got blown up. And it got blown up before he came into office because the way he campaigned was so different. 
And so in some ways it's made my work a lot more interesting because I'm constantly trying to understand we have these norms and customs. Where do they start? Why are they important? Why did we cherish them? How did they come to evolve and be? And now that they are getting blown up, what does that mean? In a lot of ways, it can be very stressful because it's really hard to read the news and shut off your brain. Everyone, I think, has a hard time reading the news, but it's really difficult to disengage with the work because it's so ever-present. There's always something happening that's valuable and relevant and important. And then as just a citizen, as an American, the presidency is the only office that represents all of us. It is probably the most powerful position in the world, which puts a burden on all Americans that we have this person representing us who also makes choices that impact people in every country, everywhere in the world. And when that goes well, that's great. And when it goes badly, that is scary. It's really, really scary. So are you able to take a long view of history, meaning when you see what's going on now and people like myself who don't spend day to day covering sort of thinking about the presidency are like the world is over. The world is over. We're doomed. We're doomed. This country is doomed. Democracy is dead. America is dead. Are you able to not get caught up in that and have a longer view and look at sort of past presidencies and past conflicts in America and compare them to what's going on now properly? I am. There are sort of two caveats to that. One, historians are very bad future predictors. So I have a hard time knowing what will come next because it's not really my job to know what will come next. And sometimes I can make an educated guess and sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm very, very wrong. And the second piece is that being a historian allows me to say certain things have happened before. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So we've gone through periods of very intense partisan division before. That's not unusual. That's difficult and can be challenging and can lead to crises, but it doesn't mean that it cannot be overcome. It's a little bit harder when then I I say, but there are things that are unprecedented because that's the part that as a historian, we're very reluctant to use that word because it has such great meaning and we don't want to dilute its meaning. And yet when we are in space where things are unprecedented, that only raises my level of alarm because I know that there aren't that many things that are unprecedented. And so it can be both reassuring and also make things worse. Wait, I love the quote. History doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. What does that mean? I'm not the first person that has said that. So I, I can't be I can't be the I can't claim brilliant credit for it. But I think it's the perfect replication that there are patterns of things that happen again and again. There are waves of nationalism. There are waves of xenophobia. There are sort of parallel concerns about immigrants. Maybe which group of immigrant we're talking about will shift over time, but those concerns come up again and again and again. There are spikes of racist conflict and then periods of civil rights improvement. Um, There are these partisan divisions that come up and then sort of ebb and flow So there are a lot of things about our contemporary world that the country has gone through before, and it's not going to look exactly the same, but some of those patterns emerge again and again. That's really fascinating because I feel like when people, for example, they'll say uh, Trump proposed a Muslim man and people make comparisons to whoever, Mussolini or Hitler or some, you know, strongman, Stalin. And 
And people are saying, no, it's not the same, blah, 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 blah. And I feel like people do fail to understand. You're not saying it's literally the same. We're not saying he's taking Jews, rounding them up and putting in a camp. You're saying there are patterns that repeat themselves. Yeah. So the concept of fascism or authoritarianism is not a, does not belong to one party. It does not belong to one person. It presents itself in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different fascist dictators. Putin, Mussolini, Hitler all happened to be fascist dictators, but the way that they operated, the way that they gained control, the way that they gained power and maintained it, who they targeted, those all were sort of different details, but that they sort of have key similar elements, which is that most of them come to power through legal means. They then target free press, organizations, opposition to maintain power. They try and cultivate support through you know, the control of information and education and the creation of a diehard, you know, devoted base and then go from there. And so what we can say, like, that's an example of saying, if we study fascism as an idea, as opposed to like the way one person uses power, that's really useful because then we can see in our own country, what are the steps that lead to that seizure of power? What happens afterwards? How can we evaluate where we are on the democratic fascist spectrum and what might be sort of the next steps that we should keep an eye out for? Okay, here's what I don't get. And this is it it veers off a little bit. I'm from New York. I'm a native New Yorker. I actually wrote a book about an old football league called the USFL, which Donald Trump owned one of the teams years ago. Um, If you grew up in New York and were familiar with Donald Trump, you basically kind of laughed at him like he was entertaining. You didn't hate him. He was just a buffoon, right? You knew he was a buffoon. He was a guy on the street corner when New York City was a little sloppy in some areas. He'd be trying to sell you a fake Rolex like that was Donald Trump. And we all knew it. And that was fine. Reality TV. Great. We all got it. And I would say the reason Donald Trump is disliked in New York isn't because he's conservative because he was never conservative to begin with. It's because we always just saw him as a huckster. How do you explain mass amounts of people falling behind a guy who kind of just seems like his suits don't really fit. He wears these cheap looking hats. His hair is weird. He's bragged about, you know, (laughs) groping women. Um, He held the Bible upside down. He couldn't name a biblical verse. He lied about nine. I mean, like on and on and on. I actually am being serious from a historical standpoint. I don't really get it. I don't get it. So there are a lot of elements that, played into his support. So the first is that he understood various grievances of a lot of his future supporters, the things that they were concerned about, the things that they were upset about. And he expressed them bluntly in a way that maybe they were thinking or they said in the privacy of their own home, but they felt like they didn't have permission to say out loud. And so when he came forth and he said, you know, all Mexicans coming across the border are rapists. Do I think that everyone who's concerned about immigration thinks that? No. Do I think some people think that? Yes. And so the fact that he was so blunt and, quote, said it like it is, despite the fact that he is actually a chronic liar, appealed to some people. In order to fact check that, you need a well-educated, engaged populace who consumes trustworthy news. We have a system that has completely broken down in terms of how information is distributed and often misinformation and disinformation is distributed and put out a lot faster than the truth can catch up to it. 
So it's really hard to fact check the things that he would say. And they made sense when people were concerned about things like immigration or losing their jobs or how they're going to you know, pay for their children's education. And so he fed into all of those concerns and made people feel like they were heard. Now, a lot of those people thought, well, first of all, he's not from D.C., so he's going to drain the swamp, which anyone who's lived in D.C. and saw sort of his impact on the city did quite the exact opposite. But they said, okay, he's going to drain the swamp. He's something new. He's a successful businessman. Now, obviously, you and I know that's the farthest thing from the truth. Pretty much every business he's ever started, he's bankrupted. He doesn't pay his workers. He is leveraged up through his eyeballs in debt. Nothing about him is a successful businessman, but he played one on television and that's what most people saw. And so they think that, oh, well, if he has this television show, then clearly he must be successful. So again, it kind of goes back to the information piece. He also benefited greatly from the rise of a news media infrastructure that was devoted to these types of things, things like Fox News, um, conservative talk, radio, new programming like podcasts, Steve Bannon, um, some new networks like OAN, Newsmax. Those didn't exist for a long time. And so he was able to get support without relying on the previous channels that might have checked his success. It makes my head explode. Yeah, it's uh, really frustrating. Wait, doesn't it make you sad? Just yeah, again, the idea that like there was this thing Donald Trump would be elected president. He would invite Obama like Obama never came back for his portrait in the White House. There was this beautiful tradition of someone coming back and it's dead. Like, I think it's dead. And it freaking it sounds so stupid. But those little things really bother me. They do, because they actually speak to much larger political trends. It's not just about the portrait. And I agree with you. That was quite upsetting. It's about a lack of willingness to see people who disagree with you as fellow citizens. They become enemies. And that's actually a very dangerous place to be, because if someone wins an election and they're your opponent, if they're your enemy, you're willing to do anything to prevent them winning or to overthrow that election. Because if they're a danger to the nation, then you are justified in taking up arms. Whereas if they're just someone who disagrees with you or on the other side of the aisle, then maybe you can have a conversation and try again in four years or two years, depending on the election. Yep. You wrote a book, as I mentioned, The Cabinet, George Washington, and then the creation of American institution that came out in 2000, uh, 2020. Um, I've written 10 books. Every book I've written, I interview, you know, at least 200, 300, 400, 500, 600 people. I'm guessing you didn't interview any of George Washington's friends. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I would love to be able to ask my subjects questions. That would be delightful and would go a long way towards answering some questions that I, I sort of had to guess at, make my very best educated guess or just not know what the outcome actually was. The research process when you're working on 18th century figures is really fascinating because it all depends on what they wrote down and what they left behind. And you obviously have no control over that. And that can be really frustrating. So like, for example, I know that towards the end of Washington's presidency, he convened far fewer meetings than he did in the middle of his presidency. He didn't say why. He didn't tell anyone why, or if he did, they didn't write it down and there's no record of it. 
So I can sort of piece together reasons why I think that was based on circumstances and who was in the various positions and all of that, but that's the best I can do. And so you're really limited by the written record and and the written record doesn't just include letters and correspondence. It includes things like newspapers and broadsides that were printed and um, material culture items. So what did the spaces look like? How did that influence their decision-making, you know, you know, I talked about at the very beginning, you're sitting in a closet. How does that affect your podcast experience where we are and, and the environment around us affects who we, you know, who we are, how we operate and our interactions, but you are limited by the fact that all these people are long dead. Some of the spaces don't exist and you kind of have to make the best of it. But I actually am very, very fascinated by this. Um, I go on Amazon and there's no shortage of George Washington related books. I mean, George Washington is well covered turf. You're a presidential historian. You decide I'm going to write a book about George Washington and the creation of his cabinet and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why do you decide to tackle a subject that is a, I mean, it sounds simplistic, but so dated where there are going to be, there are no witnesses to this whatsoever. And B, a man who's been written about ad nauseum for the last gazillion years. Let me take that second piece first. Okay. While Washington has been written about a gazillion times, you are correct. No one has ever looked at where the cabinet actually came from. Most books, even ones that I love and are brilliantly written and I cite all over the place, either treat the cabinet as sort of a fait accompli or don't even really acknowledge its creation or its existence. The Constitution does not mention the cabinet. The word is not in there. The institution was not a part of the original creation. In fact, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention explicitly rejected proposals for the cabinet. And yet every president has had one. It's a very public office. And so I didn't actually set out to write a book about George Washington. I set out to write a book about the creation of this institution and trying to explain where it came from and why do we have it? And how did it evolve? There's there's very little written down in our in our laws and our statutes about this institution. Why is that? It just so happens that it was very much a personal creation of George Washington because there were no laws, there were no statutes governing this, there was no precedent. And so he created what he thought would be best for his governing style, but he didn't do it until two and a half years into the presidency. It was not a foregone conclusion. It was not a assumption that he had from day one. So in that way, while yes, Washington has been written about a billion times, this part of his presidency has been really overlooked. And I think makes us rethink both his administrations and then also the ones that follow him. In terms of the 18th century, I am motivated by studying power and how people use it. And I would argue that even though the presidency was smaller in the 1790s, obviously, at no time did people have more impact on the nation and the formation of the government because they were creating something brand new. They were in office for the first time. Very few people actually were in the federal government. So they had enormous influence on the outcome and he was doing everything from scratch. And so he was setting all these precedents. And so if we talk about power and the ability to influence the United States and its history, this is sort of like the apex of putting your thumb on the scale. When you dig into it, are you more, you know, obviously, you know, we learn about George Washington from day one in school and we learn about the greatness of George Washington. When, when you 
when you dig into a subject and get into the nitty gritty minutia, are you more blown away by the choices he made and sort of the wisdom behind them? Or is there a part of you that sees the flaws and the warts and thinks not quite as great as I, as some people might think? Uh, Very much both. And so it is impossible to spend years with someone and not see their flaws. At least I think that if you're doing history, right, it's impossible to not see those things. He was a very flawed man. He had um, a temper. He owned other people. He knew towards the end of his life that slavery wasn't great and could have done a lot more and didn't. I mean, so there are a lot of things about him. He could be very cunning. He could be calculating. He wasn't always the most loyal friend. There are things about him that are easy to dislike. But I think that when you study someone, if you're if you're looking at them in a complete and full manner, if you can say this is just another flawed human being, and yet they did these extraordinary things, of which he did many, that's even more impressive because it's not a godlike figure. It's not a saint. It's a person who, when faced with incredibly difficult choices, did the very best that they could and sometimes did remarkably well. And that was beautifully said. This is way apples and ards, but I wrote a biography of Walter Payton years ago, the former Chicago bear. And at the end of his life, he was, you know, he had a son out of wedlock and he had painkiller addictions and was suicidal. And people say, why would you write that? Why would you possibly, what is there to gain from knowing that? And I always say like, when you see that someone has all these flaws and is still trying to do the right thing and still has this goal of being righteous, It adds to his legacy. It doesn't detract from it. It actually makes him a million times more interesting and profound. Well, and I think it's also, you know, for the purposes of of learning from those that came before us, it's way more inspiring than like this goody two shoes who always does the right thing. And it offers a way better model because it's actually something that we could try and encourage and replicate. If, you know, flawed human beings did great things in the past, then flawed human beings can do great things now, as opposed to waiting for some other divine inspiration from someone who was, you know, heaven sent and, and perfect. So I take about two years, two and a half years to do a book. And it's isolating. It's lonely. It beats on me. It kills me. You know, it eats me up. I have nightmares over it, but at least I'm dealing with alive people generally. And I'm interviewing alive people and <laughs> that takes away from all. I mean, I don't even, I hate using the word process because it sounds pretentious, but like you decide, okay, I'm going to do this book. Where do you know you're about to spend the next two years? Like what, what are you going to be doing during that time uh, period? Yeah. Well, I think it, so it, it helps a lot that I am a outgoing introvert. So I'm okay spending a lot of time by myself with mm-hmm. papers and my dog. Um, so that's, you know, sort of an essential contribution. I know that for the first period of time, I'm going to be reading. I look to read everything I can that's already been written on the subject, both because it helps give you a really good sense sort of the existing narrative arc and sort of where to, I, I think of history as a story. And so I need to be able to visualize what that story looks like a little bit before I start digging into details. And also I want to make sure I'm not being repetitious of someone who's already written something. I want to contribute something new. I want to tell a good story. So I know I'm going to spend a lot of time reading. Then I'm going to spend a lot of time following the most random rabbit holes. So I set out with a research goal of, I know I want to read through 
the correspondence of these five people for this chapter. And I want to look through these newspapers, but then you kind of have to be willing to see where it goes because they're going to be talking to other people. And so you have to look at, well, if they were sending the letter to this person, then who were they sending the letter to? Or I want to understand where they happened to spend the night if they were going to go travel and visit someone. And so then I'm looking for records of, okay, what did that town look like? What did the building look like? Are there any descriptions of the space? Um, you know, how far did it take to travel from Philadelphia to New York? What, what was that like in the 1790s? How many days did that take? How did weather impact the conditions of the road? Or if you could cross a river by ferry? And so you end up going down these just like very random rabbit holes. My most recent one was I was trying to figure out when someone received a very important letter. And I spent like two weeks trying to figure out when someone received this very important letter because you don't know in the vagaries of Atlantic sea travel in the 1790s, things could take six weeks, they could take three months. And so I was trying to figure this out. So to a certain extent, I can sort of plan it, but then it's also going to go haywire once you actually start that plan. And I am, at least with this book that I'm working on now, I am researching and writing as I go, because as that sort of very chaotic description just implied, as I'm writing, new questions come up. So I don't want to spend two years researching only to sit down and write and be like, oh, wait, I didn't think of this. So I'm sort of researching and writing as I go. But yeah, I spend a lot of time by myself in my office. I spend a lot of time talking to myself, throwing things if I can't find the answer um, and then have to, you know, put it away and go read trash fiction or go hiking with my dog or watch baseball. Wait, it seems like there are real limitations in what you're doing, though, because all right, you want to find out how long it took a letter to get from here to there and when someone received a letter. Now, again, I'm writing a biography of Bo Jackson. I want to know when he got his letter in Alabama that was sent from New York. Well, there are a million ways to figure that out because I can call people, I can ask, I can, you know, blah, 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 records, et cetera. You, it doesn't seem like there's anything new under the sun, meaning you can't turn to anybody to find these things out. So let's, let's use a letter <laughs> as an example. You want to find the specifics of this letter. What do you actually do? So the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the letter and look at the letter that was sent and see what sort of clues they're giving. So usually they will include their date and their location from where they are sending it. There are certain letter writing practices that people generally adhere to. They included their date, they included where they were writing from, and they included when the last time they received a letter from that person because mail was fairly unreliable and it took a while. So if you, let's say you're writing back and forth to your mom, you live somewhere else. You wanted to let her know that you had received this most recent thing and you were replying to that as opposed to just like sending off an email where you can literally see the chain. So there are certain practices that are helpful. So I might look at the correspondence to see if in the next letter they mention, I received your letter on the X date. In this case, that was not said. Um, then I might look at, did they say, if these are official dispatches, which they happened to be that I was looking at in this particular case, 
did they happen to say what ship they were sending it on? Sometimes they'll write that if it's like getting sent from a place like Amsterdam back to Philadelphia, they'll say, I'm sending it with this ship and this captain. And sometimes you can track the ship because those records do sometimes exist. You can also look at the receiving person's correspondence to see if they mention it to anyone else and mention the contents of the letter to anyone else that will like at least usually narrow down a couple of weeks time frame that you might be able to dig into. And then in this particular case, I was able to pull up the scans of the letter from the archives and which is a whole other question of digging into that, but I was able to pull up the scans and on the back of the letter, thankfully they had scanned it and the person had written when they had actually received it. But getting those scans is not always easy. So hence the several weeks. So those are a couple of ways that you can kind of try and narrow it down. Okay. What does it feel like when you confirm the information you're looking for? It's so exciting. I literally was like, yes. And I, you know, threw my hands up in the air and celebrated and was so pumped. And then you do have a little bit of a foolish moment that was like, I just spent two weeks trying to find this one date. (laughs) And thankfully with this particular date, it matters because it was, they were receiving news from Europe. That was a very important news. So it matters to this story. It is a piece of information I will include. So it's not wasted time, but sometimes you do feel like, wow, I cannot believe I just spent two weeks of my life trying to track this down. Wait, I just want to say for people who do not write biographies or don't write books or don't research, it is madness. It is actual madness where you are so caught up in getting one little piece of information and you get so excited when you figure it out, when you actually, it feels like you solve this puzzle that you were trying for weeks, months, days, whatever. And then you try, like in my example, I try telling, I'll call someone, my dad, and he'll be like, okay, that's good. Like it's hard for people to understand the joy of that moment, (laughs) you know? Yeah. You have to have writing buddies who are in that, that battle with you such that you can share news with people that will understand that feeling or the way I sometimes phrase it is I've been plagued by this research question for weeks and I finally found the answer. And that at least helps people sort of understand the scope of it. But it, it is helpful to have people who are in the trenches with you who, who know what that's like. Here's a weird question. Is it possible that, we'll just use George Washington as an example since we're on that George Washington okay. was a cross-dresser who for sport <laughs> killed donkeys. Like he just killed donkeys for fun because he enjoyed killing donkeys. And he's been dead for so long that we just, it's just never been uncovered. We just don't know. And there are things that big that we just have no idea about and never will. Probably not that specific example, because there were people who were their sense of privacy and private space and bodily autonomy was very different than ours. So, for example, when he was in the Revolutionary War, he would often share his campaign tent with his aides or at headquarters, the aides would also be there. And so the likelihood is if he was a cross-dresser, that somehow would have gotten sort of documented in some record by someone at, at that point. Um, there are certainly things that we will never know. And there are big moments that will be completely forgotten because they were not documented and we just don't have the answer to them. And that is incredibly frustrating and can drive historians to madness. 
Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's been watching a documentary on Warren Jeffs and now wants to start a cult. I've spoken with God Almighty, and in 23 days, 6 hours and 14 minutes, and 2 seconds to be exact, the world will be destroyed by a giant meatball. Follow me to Toledo if you want to live. Uh, can, can you add one final touch, please? Oh, right. And before you follow me to go to Toledo, go to royalretros.com and spend all your money on the best throwback hats, shirts, and jerseys. Then, and only then, will you be safe from the meatballs in Toledo. Wow, you're just like Warren Jeffs. Thanks. My 36 wives would agree. It's interesting. The other day I was listening. This is unrelated to George Washington. Um, I was listening to Liz Cheney and she was talking about sort of how history will judge the modern Republicans and history will judge Donald Trump. And we always say that in sports, we always use the stupid, stupid language, making history. He stole his 43rd. He made history by stealing his 43rd consecutive base. And I'm like, that's not making history. Like, that's no different than me eating a nacho, holding one foot in the air while singing a Hall and Oates song and being the first person to ever do that. That doesn't mean I made history. It just means I'm the first to do it. Does the term making history or history will judge History will judge Donald Trump. History will judge Liz Cheney. Do you buy that we can say right now that history will judge? I do with the caveat that as long as we keep caring about the presidency and we retain our system, it will matter. So the reason we care about the presidency, the reason anyone cares about the historical legacy of presidents and the judgment of history is because this continues to be an incredibly powerful office and it continues to be sort of the center of our political life. The example you gave with the chip and the singing is no one would really care because it doesn't really, I mean, I'm sure maybe someone in the Guinness Book of World Records might care, but it doesn't have a huge symbolic role in our public consciousness, our sense of culture, our sense of who we are as an American. So as long as those things sort of hold true, I do think that there is this judgment of history. And certainly for someone like Donald Trump, and I would actually argue, frankly, all presidents, you have to be a certain amount of crazy to want the job, especially in the 21st century, Mm -hmm. 20th century too. You have to have a pretty sizable ego. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because you have to believe in yourself enough to believe that you can make the hard decisions that no one else is going to be faced with. So that ego can be helpful, but that inherently means you probably care what people think of you. And you probably care what history will say about you because you're supposed to, to get into that position. So I think that that does matter. It's just, that is a long game and is not always very satisfying for people right now. I actually, I, you said saying, I always say like, no matter if you love the president, like I loved Obama, just an example. I loved Obama, but to be a president of the United States, you have to be a narcissist. You have to be a narcissist. You have to think you No, Do you disagree? I think you have to have an element of narcissism. Well, I don't know that narcissism is necessarily the right terminology because usually narcissists don't care about anyone else. And right. I think that, so I think what you need to be is I think you need to be an egotistical empath in order to be a decent president. You have to be egotistical to be a president. And so I think it's more of like the ego than it is narcissism. But there are certainly presidents that have been narcissists, so it's not mutually exclusive. Um, you wrote a piece for The Conversation. Uh, Mike Pence's actions on January 6th were wholly unremarkable until they saved the nation. 
You wrote, Pence has a keen sense of his place in the history. The former vice president's chief counsel told Congress, Pence said he looked forward to meeting the framers of the U.S. Constitution in heaven. That is not the statement of someone with short-term vision. <laughs> Furthermore, all of Pence's advisors, from Luddick to former vice president Dan Quayle, confirmed that history offered a resounding guidance. Is Mike Pence an American hero? No. So I should start by saying that, and you probably know this, but a lot of listeners may not. Writers don't get to choose their own headlines. Yes. So you can make a suggestion, but they won't necessarily follow it. And you don't necessarily have any input on what they do choose. I do think that he acted quite bravely on that day. And I do think that his actions were very important and did have a monumental impact on U.S. history. I guess I would like to think that if we're going to use the terminology hero, that requires something more than simply following the law. One of the things that I said in the article is that Pence basically went along with everything that Trump had done up until that point, because none of Trump's requests asked him to break the law. They might have been unpleasant. They might have been embarrassing. They might have been ridiculous or morally questionable. They weren't law breaking, per se, because the vice president doesn't really have authority. The vice president's job is to have a pulse and to oversee the Senate if there is a tie vote. And so Pence was happy to go along with all of these things until it required breaking the law. And then for, I think, moral reasons, also concerned about history, he said no. And that's admirable. And he should be applauded for that. I I don't think that we should say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter. It does matter. And he should be applauded. Should he have said something before then when he knew this plot was taking place? Probably. Should he say something since then? Probably. But. So I don't think it's necessarily heroic. It's just commendable. You may not like that I say this. I don't know where you stand on this, but reading Pence said he looked forward to meeting the framers of the U.S. Constitution in heaven. It almost makes me take two steps back and go like, okay, like if that does it for you. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what? So. So there, I mean, there are so many problems with our our current society. I think, I think two of the ones that have come up in our conversation are the president is the most powerful office, but the person who holds it is just a person. And so we tend to, to treat them as these like very special um, godlike figures. So for example, there is a, (laughs) an organization that is um, the descendants of presidents I don't know why that matters. And it's not any disrespect to their ancestors because I like a lot of their ancestors very much, but we're not a monarchy. We are not a hereditary institution. So why do the descendants matter? The second piece is the religion piece. And I will say that I am perfectly respectful of how every, how anyone wants to conduct religion in the privacy of their own home. Mm but religion has invaded our politics and our political culture in a way that was never intended. And it's, I say that with great care because the framing, the founding generation and the framers of the constitution didn't agree on much, but they did agree that there should be no set religion. There should be no religious tests. There was supposed to be this separation and we've lost that in a lot of ways. If you, uh, this is the dumbest fucking question ever. But if you could, if we could zap George Washington, literally zap him from time, put him in the DeLorean, bring him to current times, <laughs> update him on what's going on, get him a Twitter account. 
you know, blah, 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 blah. Is he just like, what, what the fuck did you people do to my, my beautiful thing? Well, so he, I mean, first, I think he'd be the most boring Twitter follow of probably all of them. Benjamin Franklin would be really interesting. Alexander Hamilton, you would have to mute because he would write like a hundred tweet threads every day. Trump. Um, yeah, yeah, not, not unlike not, that. Yeah, right, right. Um, one of the things that people, um, because we have, have treated the constitution as this sacred relic, we have not taught citizens that the framers, Washington included, weren't all that thrilled with the constitution. They were glad that it, that they had it. They were glad that it was ratified, but they thought it was imperfect. There were things he wanted, he didn't get. And that was true of everyone present. It is a compilation of compromises intended to ensure that they could get enough people to sign on to try and address some of the problems that they knew were facing the nation. And they desperately, desperately hoped that future generations would come up with better solutions to problems they had not yet envisioned. They knew slavery was going to be a huge problem, but they could not figure out how to get South Carolina to sign on to the Constitution and also bring it up. And so they didn't. And so there were just so many problems that they could see coming down the road. And they also knew that they weren't future predictors either. So there were going to be problems they couldn't foresee. And they desperately hoped that the genius of future generations would be creative and would continue to try and improve on this project and make it a more perfect union. And instead, we have treated this document as though it was created by gods and we've no, we've no longer tried to really to improve it. And we've said that it doesn't deserve uh, improvement. And for example, today, the Supreme Court handed down a a case on gun laws as though, and, and, you know, they, they bring out originalism when it suits them. And they say things like, well, you know, we need to interpret it as it would have been interpreted then. They disagreed about the interpretation from day one. They squabbled about it in Congress all the time. And so we really bastardized that history. And it does, I think, a big disservice to our nation. My conclusion on this all is we're just dumb. We need things to tell us what to do because we're too stupid to figure it out on our own. We need books to tell us exactly how we should think, because otherwise, what are we going to do? And it freaking drives me insane. I know you can't say that as a I mean, you don't even have to agree with that, but it, it does the repeated returning to a document that was written hundreds of years ago to determine what to do with, for example, an assault rifle, it doesn't make any sense. Like it actually literally doesn't make any sense. No, I mean, like they, they could not even envision the world. You know, I often say, people say like, what would they say if they, you know, if they came to our world now, they would say like, what are those giant metal tubes in the sky? Right. Because their world was so different than ours. Or like, I, you know, I wouldn't have been allowed to wear pants and, you know, I like pants. And so just like the concept that people from the 1790s have wisdom that should be applied without question to the 21st century is so ludicrous. And they would have said it was ludicrous. John Adams thought that the constitution would last for 10 years, maybe 16 if they were lucky. And that was their expectation. So it's just saying that we should apply that history to our contemporary moment is silly if you think about it and actually is a disservice to what they did because we are not living up to the legacy of constantly improving the nation that they hoped we would. I'm going to end with two, two questions here. You have to answer them. You're required by president. 
Number one. Okay. Most overrated, most underrated presidents in U.S. history. Okay. So most overrated, I think, are Kennedy and Wilson. Underrated are John Adams, see book two, coming out in August 2024. And uh, George H.W. Bush. Do you say Kennedy because the brevity gives him a sort of weight that the actuality doesn't meet the weight of it all? Um, I say Kennedy for a couple of reasons. His very tragic demise has colored how people think of him. Mm. Not unlike Abraham Lincoln, but he, I think, actually really did a lot. So that's, I think, warranted. Um, in terms of what people point to is Kennedy doing well in terms of foreign policy. He got it right about half the time. Yes, he managed to get us out of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but that was only after the Bay of Pigs. He, in terms of race and civil rights, he made a big speech and that's great and an important symbolic thing to do. But the actual improvement all came under Johnson. Uh, my son and I talk a lot about hip hop and um, we listen to a lot of Tupac Shakur and Tupac died when he was 26 years old. And, you know, Tupac, legend, blah, blah, blah. For all we know, if Tupac's alive today, he's just some hack making really bad yeah. movies. And just like Kennedy, if he had a second term, for all you know, he's just as thought of as a middling you know, it's a young death adds something to a person's legacy that we can't even quantify. It does. And also, you know, presidential legacy tends to tarnish the longer they're in office. So presidents very rarely come in with they very rarely leave office with a better approval rating than they come in. And so he didn't even really have time to get into the point of his presidency where that might too start to go down. It's like dating someone. You date someone for two weeks. She's amazing. I love her. A month Greatest later, person ever. Right. Then you realize she doesn't flush the toilet. You're like, this isn't so great after all. Um, yes, exactly. All right. Final question. You're going to hate this question. Okay. Does Trump run again? Does Biden run again? What happens? Oh, I guess I you, you missed those warnings about future predictors. Okay. With all the caveats that I have really have no idea. Okay. Um. I think that I think that they both run again. God, I can't even believe I'm going to say this sentence out loud. I think that they both run again. I think Biden will win and won't serve out a second term. Why? I don't know. But I think that that is true. I just want to say as a University of Delaware graduate, as was Joe Biden, um, I love Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden is a good person. I really do. I thought as a senator, he was wonderful and caring and compassionate. I just don't think you can be that old and instill confidence in people. I just don't. I'm not sure he should. I, so I, I don't think he should run again, I but I think he will. Because it all comes down to ego. And at the end of the day, if you're president, you don't want to not be president. Don't you think to a certain degree? Yeah. Well, I think he also has this sense. And I think he was right about this in 2020, but I think he has a sense that he's the only person that can hold the coalition together and beat Trump, especially if Trump is the one on the other side of the ticket. If DeSantis is the one on the other side of the ticket, I think the calculation changes. But if Trump is on the other side of the ticket, I think that he believes he's the only person that can hold together the wings of the Democratic Party enough and pull together enough independence in to win. He was right about that, I think, in 2020. I'm not sure that's so in 2024. Well, listen. <laughs> I know it was such a ray of sunshine. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, history is history and presidents are presidents. And, you know, I can always watch an old Jimmy Carter tape and feel happy. Uh, oh, perfect. Lindsay, I appreciate you doing this. You're way out of my wheelhouse. I love this stuff. I could talk presidents all day. Excellent.
<laughs> thank you so much for doing it. All right. That. Well, next time we'll talk more presidents and baseball players we can probably agree on. I want to thank today's guest, Dr. Lindsay Travinsky, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Lindsay on Twitter at LM Travinsky and visit her website at lindsaytravinsky.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.